our culture has a phrase for individuals who tend to wear their emotions in open public for all people to see. It's the phrase, that person wears his or her heart on his or her sleeve. And I recently came across that phrase in an article that was recounting some college football victory and said it was largely due to the college football quarterback and his emotional leadership of his team almost by sheer force of emotional will. He had carried his team to victory wearing his heart on his sleeve for all to see. And there's truth to whenever we come to a gospel text, we are getting to see perfect emotion from our Lord Jesus Christ. And you may have noticed as we've studied this gospel in recent weeks and months, that in every way, when you come to a particular passage and hear Jesus teaching, you see him ministering, you see Jesus wearing his heart on his sleeve. You could even ask questions of the gospel that we ought to often ask of the gospel. What kind of heart does Jesus have? What is his heart towards the self-righteous? More acute to our text this morning, students, is what is his heart towards sinners? Friends, this is the question that we all want to know. The deep down level of our heart. What is Christ's heart towards sinners? And so children, what you want to think about this morning as we look at these two simple and often well-known parables, it's telling us something so beautiful about the heart of Jesus Christ to those who are lost. Because these two parables have something of a magnetic force in their function for us this morning. It means to draw us into not just the heart of Jesus Christ, but also understanding the depth of his love for sinners. Because the main theme of this text is oh, so simple, isn't it? Our Lord loves to seek the salvation of sinners. That's what Jesus means to communicate to us this morning. Our Lord loves to seek the salvation of sinners. I wonder what kind of business we love to seek most, even in our life here on earth. Our Lord was always about the business, and Luke's gospel is showing this over and over with ever-increasing beauty and force, that he was about the business of seeking and saving the lost. And so if you look down at our two parables, maybe you notice this as we just read them, they're quite identical in their meaning. What Jesus is intending to communicate, he's just got like a two-sided coin of truth in the parable of the lost son and the parable of the lost coin. Because verses 1 and 2 provide us the context for these two parables. And then as the parables kind of mirror one another, first Jesus gives us the parable itself, this picture of truth he's portraying for his hearers. And then at the end of each parable, you get the application. Well, what's the simple yet striking spiritual point that he wants to make in our hearing? So I just want to walk through the text under three simple headings to try to mirror those three themes of truth in the text. First, you'll see in verses 1 and 2, the Savior who sits with sinners. Then we'll see the Savior who seeks sinners. And at the end, the celebration over repentant sinners. And so if you weren't with us last week, we left off at the end of chapter 14 by looking at Jesus' teaching in verses 25 through 35 on the cost of discipleship. He wanted would-be followers to understand what it would cost them to be his disciple. And we said that Jesus' summary teachings kind of came in these three statements where he made a claim and said, if a person doesn't do this or isn't like this, he or she cannot be my disciple. 
And so costly discipleship, according to Jesus last week, looked like pursuing Christ more than your ambitions, loving Christ more than your relations, and cherishing Christ more than your possessions. And we said, look at the powerful punctuation point he ends with in verse 35. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then as Luke's narrative progresses, we're discovering who exactly it is that is listening to Jesus. Who actually has ears to hear as we see the Savior who sits with sinners. Look at verse 1 and the attraction of Jesus Christ. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. You need to know something about tax collectors and sinners if you're going to understand why we get the parables that we're about to get. So tax collectors were like the IRS run amok in the first century. These were ordinarily men who had kind of sold out their Jewish neighbors to be stooges in the Roman Empire, extracting exorbitant taxes from their family and friends, all in service to the hated Romans. And so it's why liberal and conservative Jews alike would say that you should never trust a tax collector because they always lie to you. Their trustworthy was uh, their testimony was deemed so untrustworthy they weren't allowed to testify in an open court. Tax collectors weren't allowed to come in and worship at the synagogue or at the temple. If you came into a tax collector's home, you were believed to have been ceremonially unclean by his touch, by his presence, so dirty were these tax collectors. If you wanted to flip the metaphor a little bit from IRS run amok, they were also something like a mafia of old because they had kind of been given this commission by the Roman Empire to extract this money from their loved ones and neighbors, and they were like a law unto themselves because they could kind of go about extracting taxes however they wanted. And the point to see is that any self-respecting Jew at this time couldn't stand Tax collectors would never sit and eat with a tax collector. But also, the text tells us, notice again verse 1, there are sinners present there. Now, we have a particular connotation for sinners in our 21st century context, and in that ancient 1st century context, it could mean a couple of different things. It could refer to apostate Jews, those that kind of had broken away from the covenant community. Sinners could refer to opponents of Jews. Sinners could refer to those Jews that just broke the holy feasts and festivals, days, weeks, and years in the Jewish calendar. But I think what's more likely is the understanding of sinners as those who did not keep the meticulous demands of the Pharisees. Uh, that's who's sitting with Jesus at this moment. Because he has this attractive quality, doesn't he, in the course of his ministry, reaching out, attracting, speaking to tax collectors and sinners. And that attraction now gives way to an accusation from those Pharisees and scribes in verse 2. Notice what they say. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So just like we need to understand something about the tax collectors and sinners, we need to understand something about the Pharisees and the scribes. So students, do you remember what we've said about Pharisees and scribes as we've worked our way through Luke's gospel? Uh, Pharisees, their name came from a Hebrew word for separate or to separate. 
They were the separatists, religious fundamentalists of that time. They were the ones that were always so keen to keep meticulous parts of the law that they invented that they would never have anything to do with filthy human society. Always, it seems like, standing over Jews in condemnation, looking them down, looking down on them with a high brow of religious fanaticism and legalism. But then the scribes, you'll see next in verse 2, these were the experts in Old Testament law at this time. So if you wanted to equate Pharisees to religious fundamentalists, probably the closest analogy to the scribes in our time is like a professor of religion in a university. He's got a an expert education in the law. And these are the ones that were entrusted to teach that uh, to the people. And they had a PhD notice, double major in grumbling, the text says. He says the, the continual sense of the verb there is that they're continually grumbling. This is what the Pharisees and scribes seem to always be doing, no matter what Jesus said or did. They would be always grumbling. And here it's that he's in the presence of tax collectors and sinners. What self-respecting rabbi would ever do that? Last weekend, I was watching a soccer game uh, one evening. I guess it was Friday or Saturday night, and the boys and children were all in bed, and uh, this game I was watching about 20 minutes into the game, the referee had given the visiting team a rather controversial and questionable penalty that they subsequently converted to go up 1-0, and the broadcasters of this game were home team broadcasters. And what happened was, for the next seven minutes, I began to count it, because it was quite astonishing to hear, the broadcasters proceeded to complain and whine for near on eight minutes about the controversial penalty that was just awarded to such a degree that my wife, who just happened to be in the kitchen listening in, she normally doesn't pay too much attention to the soccer madness in our house, actually said, when are they going to give it up? It was so (laughs) obvious that they couldn't stop complaining. And you would want to ask the question of the Pharisees and the scribes, wouldn't you, at this point in Luke chapter 15, shouldn't by now they know enough of what Jesus' teaching was all about, his ministry was all about, that they would have given it up? But we need to know also at this time in Jewish religious culture, the experts in the law, even one rabbi at the time, said something to the effect of, let not a man associate with the wicked, not even to bring him to the law, or another summary rabbinic teaching was don't associate with the godless, lest you be contaminated. So what Jesus is doing, of course, is the opposite of that. Don't do it, they say. Sit with sinners. Well, this is not just a savior who sits with sinners, he also seeks sinners, as the parables go on to show. Because students, look at verse three. Kids, what's the first word in verse 3, especially if you have an ESV translation, it's so. The accusation against Jesus gives rise to the occasion for these two parables. And before we just look at him in simple compass, what you want to know is Jesus does have two aims in uttering these parables. First, he has an aim to convict the self-righteous religious leaders listening to him, that they would understand the true depth of God's love and grace for them in his Messiah. But also, he does mean to encourage those sinners and tax collectors that are listening to him. That indeed, God's Savior delights to sit with them and seek after them. And I dare say, even that any proper Christ-centered teaching and preaching will always have those two aims in view. To humble the prideful, but also to encourage the humble. 
So look at the parables start initially in verse 3 and 4. So Jesus told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Look at its mirror in verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? So we have parables of something being lost, something being searched after. And we know this tension, don't we, that Jesus is after, even in our own experience. For I dare say that for many of us, there's rarely a week that goes by. Some of us might feel that there's rarely a day that goes by that we're not having to search for something in our own. Maybe it's car keys, maybe it's your phone, maybe it's the remote control. In our home right now, our little two-year-old Sarah, we're always searching for her water cup. Because whenever we give her her cup, this can be right before dinner, we give it to her in the kitchen. And in about the 10 feet it takes her to get from the kitchen to the dining room, she has stashed it away in some hiding place that we can not possibly find. And so we take all of us in the home, all seven of us that can move around and look for something, to find this cup. And it always takes minutes upon minutes to find it. And that kind of earnest searching is what Jesus is after in these two parables. Because you need to see two things that he's showing us immediately about One, the Savior's intention, and two, the sinner's condition. Because again, look look at verse 4. You have this shepherd who has lost a sheep, and he is searching for that sheep until he finds that sheep. Then you have the woman in verse 8. She's lost one of these coins, which may evidently speak to this dowry that she received when she got married, because it was common for uh, brides at that time to receive these 10 silver coins. And this was a very uh, large amount of money at this time in Israel. So it's earnestly seeking a tenth of her, of her wealth and her income. And even the word used there, of course, at the end, notice of verse 8, is she's seeking diligently. It's meant to portray unto us the particular intentionality of Jesus Christ in seeking after his own people. He won't stop. Students, what you want to think about here, it's not as though Jesus would think of this lost sheep or this lost coin in that ancient village culture and create a flyer about I've lost a sheep or I've lost a coin and put it on some sort of town edifice and kind of sit back and let all the citizens of the area go find his beloved sheep or this great coin that he has left behind. He's, of course, the Savior that not only posts the notice, I am searching for my sheep, I am searching for my coin, but also I'm going to find it and I'm going to bring it home. And what grace Jesus has, pursuing relentless grace he has for his own people. He knows his sheep. We read earlier today, even in Luke, I'm sorry, John 10 in John's gospel. He knows his sheep and they know his voice. And he will find his sheep in the same way he will find the coin that has been lost. No soul that has truly been saved by Jesus Christ, called by him, can ever play hide and seek forever. You might hide from Jesus but he'll find you eventually. You may run away from Jesus. We'll see next week. He'll find you eventually. Maybe you're in here this morning and you're hiding. Maybe you're in here this morning and you're running. What you need to see is a Savior is searching. And he might be finding you even this morning. You need to see the Savior's intention, but also the sinner's condition. Because it's quite plain, isn't it? What's the sheep? What's the coin? Lost. He couldn't be more plain in speaking of the human condition that mankind is lost. 
There's nothing we can do to find our way home. There is nothing we can do to be discovered. The Bible, of course, tells us, doesn't it, that all mankind is born into sin. We're, by nature, children of wrath, dead in our trespasses. We are apart from God. And yet this Savior comes and searches for us. And I think there's a wonderful picture, isn't it? Even in verse 5, look again. This is of a shepherd. And what does he do when he finds the sheep? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And what a picture that is of the seeking, searching, and finding Savior. Because a guy named Philip Melanchthon, who was Luther, Martin Luther's right-hand man in the Reformation, was meditating on this passage one time in his studies, and when he got to verse 5, he wrote down this. Interwoven in the text, there is a sweet sign of Christ's compassion. He places upon his shoulders the sheep he has found and transfers to himself the burden of us. Because consider how that works out spiritually. We are lost. We can't find ourselves, but this Savior comes to discover us and to recover us and put us on his shoulders. We don't have the strength to make it all the way home to heaven. So he puts us on his shoulders to carry us there. We don't even know how to get to heaven. So he takes us, puts us on his shoulders, and guides us there. We don't even deserve to enter into heaven because we don't have the robes of righteousness required to cross into that holy place. So what does this shepherd do? spills and sheds his own blood to cleanse us as white as snow from our sin that we can enter in. And so it's why you have all the way through the Old Testament, you may have noticed this before, you have these rich images of God as the shepherd and we as the sheep. Because it is, of course, something of a spiritual insult, at least in that first century agrarian context, for us to be called sheep. Sheep are dumb. They are prone to wander. They are utterly helpless when left to their own devices. And such is mankind apart from Jesus Christ. But because of his mercy and grace towards us, he seeks us and carries us and welcomes us into the Father's eternal place of rest and righteousness. That's why Isaiah 53, in one of the richest prophecies of the Savior to come, the song in the suffering servant says, we all like sheep have gone astray but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all that we might be saved. You need to see that this Savior sits with sinners. He also seeks sinners. And I wonder if you have been found by this Savior. And what happens when the Savior finds his people? Well, look at the celebration now. The celebration over repentant sinners. Look at verse 5 through 7. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Again, look at the mirror now in verse 9 and 10, the flip side of the parabolic coin. And when, he's, and when she has found this lost coin, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me. For I have found that coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It would have been a staggering thing for the original religious leaders to hear the joy that breaks out in heaven over the salvation of sinners. Because they had a saying at this time that sounded like this about God's joy. They said, there is a joy before God when those who provoke him perish 
from the world. And Jesus is saying the exact opposite, isn't he? That the deepest, richest, greatest joy that heaven sounds forth is when a sinner is found and brought home. So much joy is there in heaven, he pictures what heaven doing. What is heaven doing? I'm sorry. Throwing a party. Throwing a party because of the sheep who has come home. The coin that has been found. So deep and full is the joy of heaven towards those who are saved. But the question then, for us, uniquely this morning, is what exactly is it specifically that heaven is rejoicing over? What exactly is it that heaven is rejoicing about? In 1916, Emperor Franz Joseph died, and he was on his way in this funeral march to be buried in this monastery crypt where all of his ancestors and previous generations had been buried. And according to the custom of that empire at the time, at the head of this funeral march was a funeral herald that would often, in that tradition, impersonate the person who is dead. So he's coming to this abbot in a monastery, or the monastery, and then the abbot of the monastery hears them on the way. And so when the funeral march reaches the monastery gates, the herald knocks on the gates, and the abbot hears the knocking and says, Who is there? And we're told that the herald replied, I'm Franz Joseph, emperor of Austria, king of Hungary. The abbot replied, I don't know that guy. Who are you? I'm Franz Joseph, emperor of Austria, king of Hungary, Bohemia, Galicia, Latidemaria, Dalmatia, grand duke of Transylvania, margrave of Moravia, duke of Styria, and Carinthia. Well, we don't know who you are. Who are you? Harold, understanding what was going on, finally said, falling down on his knees, I am Franz Joseph, a poor sinner, humbly begging for God's mercy. And the abbot says, you may now enter in. And the gates were flung open. It wasn't his title. It wasn't his success. It wasn't his ability. It wasn't even his personage that welcomed him into those gates. It was the declaration that I am but a lowly sinner. For students, look again at the end of verse 7 and look at the end of verse 10. What are the words that close out those sentences in our English translations? Repentance and repentance. That's why the old great lover of Christ in the 12th century, Bernard of Clairvaux, said the tears of the, repent- the, tears of the repenting are the wine of angels. And by that he meant, what is it that causes heaven to break forth in raucous praise and celebration? What is it that brings the angels to dance around the throne in unending joy? The repentance of sinners who have gone astray. So kids, what does it mean We've asked this question often in our study of Luke's gospel. What does it mean to repent? It's a changed mind that leads to a changed heart. Or if you know the kid's catechism, it's to be sorry for sin, to hate it and forsake it, because it's displeasing to God. We have to repent. We have to repent because we have no righteousness. We can only claim Christ's righteousness on our behalf. We have to repent because our disobedience deserves death. And Christ's obedience is the only thing that can bring us eternal life. Has heaven burst out in praise over your repentance? You know, I've often wondered in thinking about this text and meditating on it, is it maybe just one, or is maybe one of the reasons why so many Christians and churches, at least in my observation and experience, 
seem so empty of joy is because they're so empty in their repentance. Repentance causes heaven to break out in song and party. What joy might even come into our midst if repentance in its true fashion towards one another would continue to increase in our midst. There is a celebration in heaven over repentant sinners because God loves to find sinners. Christ loves to seek after the salvation of sinners. In my reading of church history, I have found few groups throughout the centuries that have so fervently and beautifully meditated on Jesus Christ as this group in the 17th century in England called the Puritans. Uh, You can find many long and rich books that they put forth and published that are just meditations on the glory of Jesus Christ. So you can think of a guy named Isaac Ambrose. He made it his normal practice. Consider this from your pastor. He made it his normal practice to disappear into a hut in a woods for the entire month of May every single year. And of course, at that time, he took with him nothing other than his Bible and some food to eat. And he would just meditate on the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ. And those meditations eventually came out in a book that was published as Looking Unto Jesus. That is one of the most moving depictions of Christ in all of his fullness that I think you could ever read. Or the prince of the Puritans named John Owen. In the last year of his life, the last book that he was tinkering around with before he died was called Discourses and Meditations on the Glory of Christ, now commonly referred to as The Glory of Christ, a book that's never gone out of print in the many hundreds of years since it was first put out. Or you can take his former colleague named Thomas Goodwin. He and Owen shared a pulpit, a Sunday afternoon pulpit for a period of time there in England. And he wrote many books, probably is the only Puritan that could rival Owen in his theology, and his richest treatises are on Christ. One is titled Christ the Mediator. One is titled Christ Set Forth. His most devotional one is titled The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners. And this is a passage that tells us, doesn't it? The heart of Christ towards sinners. What is Jesus' heart towards those who are lost? to people that the ancients would call tax collectors and sinners. And what I want you to see as we begin to close is this text, these two parables are very much a declaration of Christ's heart. But they're also, when you understand the original context, the accusation of the religious leaders, they are also a diagnostic exam of our own heart. What he's meaning to do, and we're going to see this most acutely next week in the parable of the prodigal son, he's wanting to put his finger and poke around at the self-righteous hypocrisy of these Pharisees that can't even get excited about the salvation of a tax collector and a sinner. So full of iniquity, hate is their heart. So as we begin to close, what I want to do is try to reflect the two main themes that I think are present in these two parables and just turn them around in certain ways and put them in the form of a diagnostic question for our consideration and even meditation this week. So number one, how is your earnestness in seeking the salvation of souls? How is your earnestness in seeking the salvation of souls? It was Christ's business here on earth to seek and save the lost when he gave his final marching orders to the church before he ascended into heaven. He said, go into the nations and call them to repent. Continue this work of seeking and saving the lost. And so he is still seeking and saving the lost through the ministry of his faithful local churches. How is our earnestness in seeking the salvation of sinners? And maybe I can even encourage you this morning just to take something even from the parable of the lost sheep. 
Might there just be one person you can be praying for and seeking after in the months that remain in 2018? How is your earnestness? But secondly, how is your excitement over the salvation of sinners? How is your excitement over the salvation of sinners? I dare say that many of us have church experiences Histories with fellow Christians that would say a church's excitement often is everything but a preoccupation with the salvation of sinners. For a church's excitement and deepest passions is often on secondary or tertiary matters. We get most excited about a musical style in a particular church. We get most excited about a liturgical order in a particular church. We get most excited about certain ministerial programming. We get most excited about leadership development. We get most excited about strategic ministry planning that gives us vision and mission which we can now announce to the masses, which all might be good and necessary things, but ought not it to pale in comparison to our excitement over the salvation of sinners. You may have heard the name before of a New Testament scholar named D.A. Carson. He was once asked in an interview to reflect on his decades in teaching in seminary settings. And he said this, I have learned, if if I have learned anything, in 35 or 40 years of teaching, it's that students don't learn everything I teach them. And those of you who are parents who are older know that's true, right, of your parenting. Uh, Children don't learn everything I teach them. But he did say this, what they learn is what I'm excited about. The kinds of things that I emphasize again and again and again and again. What they learn is what I'm excited about. What excites you most? What excites us most? What excited Jesus most? What excites heaven most is what? The repentance of sinners who have been found by a sovereign, gracious Savior. How is your earnestness? Where is your excitement? God loves to seek the salvation of sinners. May he by his spirit help us to be such people even this week. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you do seek us, that you pursue us, that you come after us for as long as it takes that we might know the fullness of life that's found in Jesus Christ. And so I do pray that you would find many in here in this room, if any are lost, that they would be found by Christ today. That the arms of a merciful, gracious, and sovereign and seeking Savior would envelop them. And that we might rejoice alongside of heaven in the repentance and the return of someone who is lost. So help us, we pray, in our earnestness. Help us in our excitement, in our mission in life together as we want to be about the business just as Christ has commissioned us of seeking and saving the lost. And help us to do that unto your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.